Climate modeling is increasingly important as supply chain, emergency management, and dozens of other efforts need to make predictions about the future conditions and how they will impact business and services. Analyzing climate data requires geospatial systems, and those systems need to be full-stack geospatial technology solutions. Gopal Aranjipara serves as CTO and head of product at Sust Global, a venture focused on geospatial analytics. We discuss the software of climate adaptation. Gopal, welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Thank you, Kyle. Delighted to be here. Well, I definitely want to get into the work you're doing at SUST, but I also like to start with people's backgrounds. Maybe give us the high level. What does SUST do? SUST Global is focused on transforming the frontier climate science into actionable intelligence serving the financial services space. We founded with the mission of being the objective source of truth for climate data. Gotcha. Well, let's get into your background then. I know climate data is something one has to study and know a few things about to work with on a you know accurate scientific basis. What's your history? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So I am an electrical engineer turned software person, and then software engineer turned pure play data person over the last you know decade or so. I uh, moved to the Bay Area to work in audio and video tech. Uh, in the cinema space at Dolby Labs. And around five, six years ago, I, I was enamored by bringing back my background in, soft, in data and machine learning into the computer vision space. So uh, that's, that's how I transitioned from multimedia tech and software in audio and video to uh, machine learning and found geospatial data to have you know, big, complex problems as well as a rich opportunity set in the domain of spatiotemporal analytics and graduated into doing that more and more, headed up data and insights at Planet Labs, one of the pioneers in earth observation and uh, remote sensing based uh, data and analytics, and then developed further fascination for climate related data and saw the link between large scale geospatial data sets and climate and the insights that we need to serve down there. So that's been my trajectory. When it comes to climate data, what's the raw data? What can one get access to? Yeah, great question, Kyle. I feel like it's a, there are two dimensions to you know the data sets you currently have. There's the, and I like to think of it along the axis of time, there's the historic dimension, which is like looking at the observed data sets, observed incidents of fires, floods, emissions, and uh, related earth observation-based uh, data collections. And then there's the forward-looking dimension, which is the projections from models, frontier climate models that uh, project population growth, project the what they call the scenarios around climate modeling, and the from those models, you can get the derivations of fundamental variables along the environment. So that would be temperature, precipitation, humidity. Those are all fundamental climate variables. And through them, you can derive more complex data sets of projections, which are around uh, level two, level three kind of events, burnt area, flooding, cyclones, sea level rise, which are derivatives of these fundamental variables uh, impacting specific regions on the Earth's surface. 
So you've developed these different models that can predict these events or track them or provide, you know, I guess broad analytics around it. How does that become a commercial product? Yeah, that's been like the journey we've gone through over the last year. And so one of the things we've had, uh, we've done is over the last year, we've gone through this very deep product exploration cycle uh, into defining what are the core set of capabilities that can come together with the historic as well as the forward-looking dimensions of risk. And one of the one of the things that came through our learnings was there is a there is a gap between the frontier climate science and Earth observation, which is the remote sensing and the Earth system scientists and the uh, climatology space. And the spaces we are seeking to serve the product in, which is financial services, insurance, asset management, banking, and reporting in the environmental, social, and governance, aka ESG space. And what we have focused our product capabilities on is enabling asset-level insights on physical climate risk impacts uh, from the changing climate and the evolution of that from the historic perspective to those based on scenarios projecting different kinds of growth social and economical growth in the years and decades to come. So I'm imagining a company in financial services, maybe a big name like PricewaterhouseCoopers or Ernst & Young, amongst the things that is that company is a lot of real estate or maybe a lot of leases or some combination. With a big enough portfolio, you probably have to ask questions like, is this building going to be on underwater in 50 years? Are those the types of things people are asking or what are the questions they bring to the table? Yeah, you know, it, it, they're all related. You know, fundamentally, we look, we're seeing two, uh, two cohorts of uh, users. One of them is largely uh, driven by reporting needs, uh, where the uh, increasing amount of focus on climate and the financial services space, you're seeing the emergence of some of the newer reporting frameworks, the TCFD, aka the Task Force for Climate-Related Disclosures, and the very recently announced ISSB, the International Standards uh, Board, uh, based uh, requirements. So in order to do, be able to run through uh, assessment of risk to holdings that you have in a balance sheet, be it one of the companies that you mentioned, or be it a group of real estate portfolios that are being transacted, you often need to do those kind of reporting. And there's been a void in the kind of data uh, and data sets available for being able to do that assessment in a data-driven asset level capability. So that's kind of one cohort of customers that we are serving, very qualitative, often very visual analysis driven. And then we are seeing more of the quantitative users who are seeking to uh, enable climate-related signals into products that they're currently building, be it securitized assets or be it uh, other forms of uh, real estate-oriented uh, products. And climate forms one of the integral ways by which they assess the value of properties over the course of time. So our product helps serve that need. And can you describe a little bit about the tech stack you guys are on? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So here's one of the, the exciting things that, you know, we uh, we feel pretty, uh, pretty proud about. Like having been a more uh, newer company, now, we've had the chance to look at 
what's the modern geospatial data analytics stack and what's the layer cake of technologies that you bring together towards serving this new emerging customer base with asset level insights at, at global scale because some of the portfolios we analyze are, are global. So we're largely on a cloud service provider. Uh, we are using a combination of, on the technology side, we're using a combination of DAGs and operational orchestration workflows like Airflow, which connect into larger data warehousing solutions like uh, a combination of Google Cloud Storage as well as BigQuery and serving that through Python-based applications which serve APIs as well as dashboards. Interesting. So in an API case, what types of requests are people making of you? Yeah, it's a combination of, uh, of things. We have uh, realized there's the opportunity to serve these kind of capabilities at scale. And it could be a query at the portfolio level, which is, okay, here are my, my group of assets or my group of entities. And I'm seeking to understand the risk, either as summaries or time series-based insights across my entire portfolio. And then being able to drill down on where is the vulnerability, where is the extent of the exposure most prevalent, and being able to get that uh, through the API is uh, another thing that we are, we are enabling our customers with. So your solution, I guess I would frame it as it's an information service. I can get data from you and I can also get these insights, which are presumably some abstraction or higher level modeled forecasted uh, version of the raw data. All of that should, I presume, go towards a decision one of your clients needs to make. Do you have transparency into the types of decisions they're looking to make? Yeah, yeah. Oftentimes, you know, we've founded SUST with the, with the mission of enabling sustainable capital allocation. And oftentimes, the decisions that lead to that, being able to enable the allocation of capital in a climate-conscious way, and today, you know, the, the markets we serve, in the markets we serve, the people who use our products are kind of the early movers, the early adopters of this capability. They're often seeking to answer questions around, in my, my portfolio, in my group of holdings, where is the concentration of climate-related risk exposure? Where is the opportunity for arbitrage between different portfolios that have similar constituents of assets, but have varying levels of exposure to climate-related risk? And what is the extent of the exposure in the cases where it does exist? So it leads to a larger set of possibilities around heat mapping, time series-based insights, comparative analysis, uh, cross-validation across different uh, data sets towards better understanding the risk. And we believe we can get to sustainable capital allocation in this customer base and the growing collection of uh, climate conscious businesses by driving the awareness and the understanding through the data that we serve. What does it take for a business to really be climate conscious? What standards or level do they need to hold themselves to? Yeah, it's definitely a broad topic and I'll just give you my take on it, you know. Uh, I think this we are, we are charting like new territory when we talk about uh, climate conscious and nature. But the way I think about it is uh, in the broad sense, and, and when it comes to climate action, people think of 
mitigation and adaptation. We are in the, the space of uh, climate adaptation. This is the process of adjusting to the current and expected uh, climate change and climate scenarios and its effects. And normally that's a bundling of many different assumptions. Now, climate adaptation is one of the ways to respond to climate change along with mitigation. The real need for adaptation is always geospatial, varies from place to place, and is very sensitive to environmental impacts. And when I think of uh, capital allocation and being able to do that in a conscious way, it also connects into the notion which has been broadly surfaced as conscious capitalism. And basically, it connects into the way we think about our team here at SAS Global. Uh, we think of it with the higher purpose, which is how can we elevate our community and through that the larger population through business. And that begins with knowing, you know, why, why us, why our software, why our data and why SAS Global. So why does your company exist? And we've had to think hard about it. And that helps us define our true north and make decisions in a sensible way. And we believe through serving this data downstream, uh, we are enabling our customers and our partners to do the same thing, which is enabling capitalism, but also enabling the climate consciousness, which comes through data and understanding how the data that, how data around environmental sensing and forward-looking climate uh, projections derived from the frontier climate models can enable a deeper understanding of how you're distributing your capital. Are you building homes in areas which are very, very prone to flooding and wildfires? Are you enabling the construction of new sites in areas which are close to uh, huge environmental impacts in the years to come? Like The data can help inform that. And through that, we can enable a greater understanding of the way capital can be allocated if you choose to. And that's why you need to be conscious. So I am not a climatologist. I, I don't claim to understand those sciences. But I am aware that a lot of change is taking place. The earth is heating, doesn't seem to be slowing down. I live in California. I'm well aware that we're seeing a dramatic increase in wildfires, partially as a result, maybe also partially, of, you know, efforts to not let them burn for a while. Climate is very complex and uh, governmental decisions could have a sweeping effect. To what degree is that challenging for your modeling efforts? Yeah, it is, it is challenging. You know, the, the thing to keep in mind when you think about the climate is it's inherently multivariate, multimodal a problem set and things are connected. So, you know, looking at just the uh, climate around California is often limiting and often incomplete. So it needs to be studied at a often, oftentimes for many of the uh, in indicators and impacts we're trying to assess. Now you kind of need to start at a global assessment. And the exciting thing for us as like data and software people is like now there are the, the notion of understanding the changing climate has always existed. It's not new. Uh, people have tried and worked on that problem for 50 plus years. But in the last few years, we've seen the emergence of some fairly sophisticated capabilities designed to enable projections at very granular grid cells and regions 
uh, think of them as like either zip codes or think of them as like very fine-grained uh, land parcel level, but they all connect up to global capabilities. And that's a class of modeling efforts called the global circulation models or global climate models. And they do take into account the most recent impacts, uh, albeit in over longer time periods. We like to think of, as humans, we often like to think of it as like the most recent months and years, but the climate models study that over like years, decades, and maybe collections of decades. So uh, it, it, is, it is a non-trivial problem to solve, which is to account for the most recent uh, events and the most recent changes in the climate. But then is also the opportunity uh, where you can bring together these global capabilities along with localized impact measures and uh, localized uh, understanding of the environment and the changing climate in specific regions. So my understanding is you have these models that they must be updated periodically or maybe continuously. Can you talk a little bit about that technology stack? What does it take to, what is a model in software terms and how do you maintain it? Yeah, absolutely. So in the past, you know, when you asked me at this early, I was largely talking on the technologies. And you look at like data, and this connects into how we've started exploring this. In my personal journey, you know, I've started looking at climate more from a geospatial and spatial data analysis point of view. And I've thought of climate modeling and climate-related analytics as fundamentally solving big geospatial data problems or geospatial big data problems. And Therein uh, lies the opportunity. At the end of the day, the impacts are often spatial and uh, spatially connected. And what I mean by that is spatial proximity needs to be taken into account and often driven by contextual metadata. So you're looking at uh, uh, the vegetation, you're looking at the land cover metrics, you're looking at the elevation. And those are all the metadata layers on top of the, the raw geospatial impact uh, or exposure metrics that you work on. So the stack would be a combination of multimodal data aggregation, uh, layering, ensembling, uh, and methodologies related to that, uh, sampling, creating normalized data sets at uh, specific scales is one of the important steps in here because when you bring together multimodal spatial data, they're often at different resolutions different uh, temporal cadence and harmonizing that is a non-trivial exercise. So I call that largely uh, spatial data transformation. And then once the data is in a normalized form, they can be connected into different kinds of spatial temporal learning systems, uh, which is a combination of computer vision derived as well as statistically learning, uh, statistical learning derived methodologies. And the thing that I found fascinating is uh, coming from photorealistic imagery and having a background in that and connecting that into how you look at uh, high resolution climate projections derived from low resolution climate projections and we derived a, a suite of uh, algorithms related to that some of which we presented at new rips last year which we called super resolution which is can you take global climate models at a specific resolution blend them with an understanding of high resolution uh, historic observations and create a learning system that can super resolve or increase the resolution of the global climate models that enable asset level assessments. And that's one piece of our capabilities. And then being able to intelligently sample that data set and validate it because at the end of the day, your projections can be 
manifold and often bundling a lot of assumptions. It comes down to, based on the last several years, how do those projections match up with reality and how well are they validated, which builds the trust, which gets us closer to the objective source of truth for climate data, which is kind of what our mission has always been. And that uh, NERIP's presentation you'd mentioned, uh, should I take for granted it's a deep learning approach or how does it work under the hood? Yes, yes. So it's deep. Uh, it's, it's a deep learning based approach. And to get a little deeper on that, when we originally started looking at this problem, which is based on historic observations at high resolution and forward looking projections at lower resolution, can we create higher resolution versions of the forward looking projections? We reviewed the literature, and one of the things we, we consistently saw is you know, super resolutions existed in photorealistic imagery for many years. The opportunity there is like your very large data sets of photorealistic imagery, and they're in, uh, uh, they're in existing data sets as well as prevalent among what we, you and I uh, click on our phones every day. However, when it comes to climate models, the data is inherently more sparse. Uh, there are fewer data sets. Uh, related to high-resolution sensing. And uh, that requires us to think about super-resolution as a different class of uh, modeling capabilities from the deep learning side. Uh, you can't make it too deep because if you're making it too deep, then you have like a lot of, uh, lot of parameters in the model to train. So when we looked at the, new, at the work we presented at NeurIPS last year, we, we thought, how can we design a, a network which is inspired by computer vision and deep learning that can enable the training of models on limited data sets because historic observations of wildfires, which is the problem we try to look at more closely there, is limited. Like you only have uh, 20 to 30 years of observations at the monthly cadence that we can use for uh, assessment purposes. And most of that data is sparse because there are a lot of zeros. Fire doesn't happen everywhere. It's like a, it's still a, uh, extreme event when it comes to environmental impact. Less so in the last few years, but still historically that's true. And then how can we create an architecture which we can extend so that we can increase the resolution of our network as we have more data. So those are the design goals we started with. And that's kind of the, the network we, we arrived at, which is can we use a combination of uh, convolutions and upsampling layers that build in the network the capacity and the intelligence to look at historic data coupled with around burnt area and around fire exposure, along with the intelligence around land cover, temperature deviation, that allows you to make better predictions on where, where wildfire is prevalent at a, at a much more granular scale. And that's what we put together there. And it's been working well for us in our... Uh, uh, assessment so far. Well, you mentioned planning for scalability and anticipation of more data. Where is that data going to come from and what type of data is it? Yeah, so the way, the way we look at it, I think with the emergence of like newer sensors, the historic data is going to be uh, more rich. Uh, we want to plan for that. Uh, we also see with like newer Earth observation sensors there being less of the data scarcity problem in the next decade and more of the data abundance problem, which is you have so much data, how do you create and refine the structure from it? So that's where we have been thinking about scale. 
And when it comes to the, the climate models, you know, when you increase the resolution, you inherently come into a higher scale on like the data. And uh, when you look at like a wide collections of models that collect regional as well as global impact, then uh, in certain regions, you're dealing with fairly large scale. So that's the way we are looking at data growth and data gravity within SAS Global as how do we distill this down to something that is meaningful and how do we bring in the right level of automation, machine learning and uh, intelligence towards serving simplified and easy to understand insights that abstract the complexity but are available in terms of the transparency if the, the user or the customer seeks to dive deeper. Your site describes the use of climate models that are then validated by empirical data from satellite imagery and things like that. Could you describe that process a little bit? Yeah, yeah, for sure. We've been, again, this, this goes back to uh, the opportunity that we are seeing. There's this tremendous growth in sensors that are being launched into space that uh, do a rich collection of environmental sensing. And the data derived from that can be used for validation and verification of climate-related hazards and climate-related uh, risk and a deeper understanding of how well the models are calibrated. So for almost every projection indicator that we, we want to serve downstream, uh, we are finding the opportunity to pick, pick up a sensor data set that has a one-to-one -one correspondence, which is here's the indicator on the hazard that we are projecting. And if we use that same model for backtesting over the last 20 years, we have a sensor data set that we can use, which uh, provides with, like a ground truth and validation signal. So that's the way we are validating the data from the frontier assessments and frontier climate models and serving that downstream post-validation and post-correction. So that's been our approach. I'm aware of the growing space imagery industry and a couple of competing companies now that if you need a picture taken, you can make that request and they'll take it for you. And I guess they also do general surveys and sell that data. Can you talk a little bit about how you use computer vision to leverage that? What are some of the things you want to learn from these pictures? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So no, it's, a, it's a class of problems. Fundamentally, when you have many collections so the the there are two when it comes to satellite data there are kind of two high level capabilities that are often served one is uh, one is tasking the other one is monitoring tasking is i want to cover a, spe a specific region or a specific point in uh, on the landmass or in the ocean and i can go i can request the satellite to go take a picture there and then there's the concept of monitoring, which is you're frequently imaging the Earth and you're coming up with a deep collection of images, a collection of images which reflect one specific point from which you can derive insights. So both of them uh, connect into computer vision and computer vision algorithms, which is if you're looking for a specific group of uh, objects or features in a specific captured image set or like a collection of captured images for a specific region, you could do that. The possibility with monitoring missions is the ability to monitor a region over time and see the change in the features over time, which allows you to create a deeper understanding of what's actually happening on the ground. 
So to a great extent, that's kind of what we looked at very closely at my team at Planet, which led to the change detection uh, product capability that is part of Planet Analytics today. And from the sustainability standpoint, when we are looking at that, those kind of data sets at Sus Global, we are looking at it more as like the climate variables that change over time. And you can abstract the feature detection piece to be something uh, which is akin to what you do in computer vision. So it's not fundamentally a vision problem, but you can borrow from computer vision derived approaches because you're looking at spatially interconnected data points and the geospatial nature of earth observation and climate modeling is the fundamental there. Let's say there's someone listening who's got a, a good engineering background, maybe knows some data science, has done some machine learning. Uh, they've got a great resume from a technology point of view. They've never worked in anything geospatial or in climate before. What's the learning curve going to be like? Like the learning curve is going to be a very exciting one. I think for people who have worked in computer vision and machine learning in the past, my experience has been they find the impact-driven nature of this work very interesting and exciting because you're suddenly working with more real-world data. You're working with more impact-driven understanding of the climate and the environment, which inspires many software and machine learning engineers. And picking up the geospatial uh, foundations, I would say is not, not super complicated if you have the right motivations and the right mentorship. At the end of the day, I feel like humans are geospatial computers. You know, we, we form our memories and build our intelligence around places. You know, we remember things based on where they happened. And that allows you to intuitively pick up things in geospatial, in the geospatial context effectively. So it's a fun problem bringing together your exploratory side as well as your technical exploitation side. So, yeah, uh, I think it's a, it'll be a fantastic learning journey for anyone who's motivated. When you think about the company, maybe five years out, uh, how do things look there? Yeah, how do I see it playing out? I say I feel like we're at the tipping point of like a massive, massive uh, transformation. You know, we anticipate every business in the future will have a relevance and a sensitivity to the changing climate in the years to come. And in the next five years, we anticipate the ability to have a even greater impact through the emergence of policy, the emergence of the interest and understanding around the changing climate and how that's driving business decision-making. So um, in five years' time, we see ourselves having a bigger role to play, serving much more customers than we do today uh, because the base is growing and uh, the ability to have much uh, bigger impact. And will your customers consider you their data provider or a SaaS solution? Uh, how do you present yourselves within their stack of different tools they're using? Yeah, I would say it's a combination of both. So I think of SaaS as uh, fundamentally, you know, the, the go-to-market, like a way you're serving the capability. And when it comes to the kind of capability, kind of insights we're serving, that's a data opportunity. So we are a data provider enabling the integration of the kinds of data we are serving through simplified 
and easy to use friction-free APIs as well as dashboards. So that's the way we think of our product, which is a SaaS go-to-market with a data fundamental. Have there been any major technology hurdles that you've had to jump over in this process? Yeah, yeah, I feel like there there are multiple of those. I would say the bigger challenge on the the technical side has been identifying the methodologies for harmonizing which complex geospatial data sets and being able to organize them in an intelligent way. And we've seen different organizations solve this in different ways. If you look at mapping, you know, you have the grid cell-based approach. If you're looking at location-sensitive data, uh, for navigation, then you have the hexagonal approach. Whereas when, when you're looking at it from a climate standpoint, you need to organize the data in which the spatial context is maintained. Scalability across different zoom levels is preserved. And uh, we've had to make some intelligent choices there. So I would call them, going back to your question, I would call them less as like big challenges, but more as like big technical decisions and choices that we've had to make. And then going back to the work we did on um, computer vision inspired methodologies for deep learning and statistical learning on climate data you know that's an ongoing effort i think it's a larger body of work that's still continuing uh, which is how do you how do you intelligently transform the rich data sets we're working with into uh, meaningful unique useful insights serving our customers and are there any hurdles you're currently trying to jump over that are interesting from a technology point of view? Yeah, a few. You know, we've been, at the end of the day, one of the things we are also motivated about doing is uh, we want to leverage community learnings as well as like the, the frontier capabilities in climate modeling research as well as the cloud data providers to the, the best possible way because we don't want to invent everything. We want to invent the essential pieces that uh, propel our business forward and use uh, capabilities that exist, uh, albeit very new, to the best uh, possible way. So towards the end, we are constantly looking at the frontier capabilities in cloud providers, You know, looking at new ways of like uh, orchestrating complex workflows, new ways of like organizing data with spatial indices, uh, new ways of like transforming data on the fly. So all those are within the suite of things we are looking at and trying to build like the most efficient tech stack from the ground up uh, that leverages all the existing tools that are currently being developed in the community, both on the software side as well as the geospatial and climate modeling side. You had been describing some of the vendors you might use or the growing solutions available in GIS and things like that. So there's sometimes there's technology you can leverage. Other times, maybe there's a strategic area where you want to build uh, something that's either private or be the leader of the process. Where's the technology innovation coming from? The, we're seeing the technical innovation in different places. Like when, when, it comes to, when it comes to software and software libraries, we're seeing the emergence of some very interesting libraries across the climate modeling realm. You know, I would, I would say... Libraries like Xclim, which allows very high quality verification and validation of data, something that I like to call out. Uh, the other one would be uh, Climpred, which is enabling different forms of prediction on fundamental as well as more sophisticated climate variables. Those are two libraries we found very useful and interesting, and we're 
uh, we've uh, determined how to use them. I would say on the on the larger technology side, I feel a lot of those capabilities exist today, but they're solving a different set of problems compared to what we are solving. So figuring out how to use th those uh, technologies, be it uh, data warehousing solutions or workflow orchestration to fit our needs is kind of a place we're investing a fair bit of our energy. And uh, it's an exciting set of problems to solve. Well, I know the company's growing. Can you tell me a little bit about uh, growing in what ways and maybe some of the opportunities that might be there? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. We we are uh, uh, so on the on the people front. You know, we are we are growing on uh, multiple dimensions. We've strategically organized our team uh, to have a com you know bring together the organizations of product and the organizations of engineering more closely. At the end of the day, what we are serving is a deeply technical capability that's going into some highly mature verticals, albeit that ecosystem is growing and evolving. And that requires the technology and the product organizations to uh, work in tight cohesion and in uh, with the same sh set of shared incentives. And uh, towards the end, we've designed the organization to have the product and the engineering and technical teams to work uh, together. I'm actively recruiting for climate uh, data scientists, you know, data scientists first, climate second, and also the other way around. So we're looking at multiple roles in that space. And I'm also uh, recruiting for infrastructure as well as backend engineers who are inspired by using their skills in infrastructure and in uh, web technologies to addressing climate change and working on a product stack that is relatively new and serving a growing collection of customers. I'm also uh, actively recruiting for like uh, product management functions that can help shape, define and execute on these uh, very specific API and data data serving needs we have for our customers. Well, for listeners that might be interested, where's the best place to learn more? Yeah, the best place to go would be careers, the careers page on susglobal.com. All the roles, the open roles are listed there. And we are excited to connect into the community, uh, learn about their backgrounds, and it's very easy to apply there. So if any of those roles resonate with the audience, I would encourage them to either reach out directly to me or like send in a note on the careers webpage. Well, Gopal, thank you so much for coming on Software Engineering Daily. Kyle, it's been a pleasure. Thank you very much for having me. And it's been a delight.